Hey guys, it's another week of Girl Boss Radio here with your host, me, Sophia Amoruso. I'm the founder of Nasty Gal, the author of Girl Boss, the author of Nasty Galaxy, and um, I don't even know anymore. I can't keep track. This podcast is a really fun way for me to learn uh, what works for other people because I'm constantly trying to figure out what works for me. And then I get to share it with you for free. I'm currently on a book tour for my second book called Nasty Galaxy, which is out now. You can go buy it anywhere books are sold. It's real pretty. It's four pounds, but it's like not expensive and it's really colorful and there's lots of photos and uh, it's like 272 pages and looks like a coffee table book but it's something you can read so it's a trick it's pretty but it has substance like all of us right on this podcast I find women that inspire me we try not to use the word success because uh, nothing is a straight line and Nothing is a real destination other than hopefully waking up every day and someday dying relatively happy, right? I try to extract advice that helps you, that helps me, and just trace the story of another amazing woman. So let's get to the interview. Like many of us, journalist Jessica Bennett and her friends needed a girl posse to help her navigate the subtle daily bouts of sexism in the workplace. So they sought refuge by creating a feminist fight club, a group of New York women in the creative fields who meet once a month to share advice, vent, and ultimately support each other through their careers. Jessica's penned her difficult workplace experiences, hilarious tips, and other useful advice for women in the workplace in her new book, Feminist Fight Club, which creatively details how we can band together and fight mansplainers, manterrupters, and stenographers. Jessica is an award-winning journalist and critic who writes on gender issues, sexuality, and culture. She's a feature writer and columnist at the New York Times, and her work has also appeared in Newsweek, where she began her career as a staff writer. Jessica is also a contributing editor at LeanIn.org, the nonprofit founded by Sheryl Sandberg, where she is the co-founder and curator of the LeanIn Collection, a partnership with Getty Images to change the way women are depicted in stock photography. We're so happy Jessica was able to join us here in Los Angeles at Neuhaus. Jessica, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Um, so we start every episode with the same question, just because everybody has a start. And I think it's really interesting just to learn. I mean, you can't connect where you started with where you are today. Maybe you can. Um, but, you know, my first job was at Subway. I don't know what that has to do with anything that I'm doing today other than the fact that you have to be really meticulous with the number of olives you use. Mm -hmm. um, Toppings are very important. I think so. Like the anatomy of a sandwich is a yes. real science. It's a gift. Yeah. Um, just like crunch to soft and wet to dry uh -huh. and cold to warm. Uh-huh. Anyway, what was your first job? <laughs> so my first, I'll tell you my first journalism job. I was in school in Boston, and I got this really exciting fellowship at the Boston Globe, and they would choose one student from local schools, and you would take six months off, and you would get to work in the newsroom. And I was the crime reporter, and my shift began at 4 p.m., and it went <laughs> until 1 a.m., and it was my job to sit next to the police radio where they would call in all the codes for the different kinds of crimes that had happened and basically haul ass to my car, which was parked in the parking lot outside, <laughs> as soon as I heard something and slam on the gas and get to the crime scene as fast as possible. And in the old days of journalism, this is how people started out. Like this was a pretty standard entry-level job. Um, and a lot of places would look for this when they were thinking about whether to promote you or whether to hire you. Like that is no longer Just like case. how responsive are you? Like how does your adrenaline work and um, how fast is your car? I guess. And just like could you find the place? Could you interview the strangers um, at the scene? Like how comfortable were you talking, like interjecting into these groups of these old school Boston cops who are so mean 
and be like, can you give me a quote on what happened here? Anyway, it was hell. It was horrible. Sounds I would really cry dangerous. every day. Um, it wasn't so much dangerous because you would always arrive after the cops. So like whatever the crime scene was, whether it was like a fire or an accident or a stabbing, things would have been cleaned up for the most part. But then it was your job to go knock on neighbors' doors. And that was pretty much the worst job possible because here I am like this little girl in the middle of Roxbury in Boston knocking on doors because something bad happened and like the people would only see journalists when something bad happened and and I'm just like this little naive gung-ho junior reporter uh-huh. knocking on neighbors doors and never getting to really delve in deep into any of the issues. Like there was, at the time, there was a string of stabbings that was happening on the T, the subway. And it was like somebody needed to investigate further what was going on and like why these kept happening. But we would just show up at crime scenes and we would get like one quote and then we would print this little brief in the paper. And then I would like go back to my sad desk and cry. (laughs) And then it would be like two in the morning. How long did that go on for? It was six months. I almost didn't become a journalist. That's a really long time when you're young. (laughs) It was also the coldest winter in Boston since 1848. So I would show, I had this like horrible um, long down coat that my mother had gotten me. And I would show up in the coat and like my hands would be falling off because they were so freezing. And yeah, he'd be standing outside for just like hours on end. I've actually been to Boston University. The girls there are really cool. Yeah, it was like, they have like a girls kind of, I forget what it's called, like a women's conference thing. Oh, cool. Brought me out to talk. And oh, nice. The one girl was like, I'm from the Lean In Circle. I'm oh. from this other club. And cool. another one's like, This is my older sister. I'm still in high school. What do I do if my parents like want me to do something that I don't want to do uh-huh. in my life? And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> it was well, really don't cute. Don't go be a cop they're supporter. Like, they're really impressive <laughs> girls. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so. What happened after that six months? Did you just like never want to work again? How did you keep going and Uh, what did you do? Well, so I went to study abroad in Argentina immediately after that. And then I I graduated. Defrost. Yeah, I defrosted. Um, I learned that I always needed to carry a pencil, not a pen, when going out in the freezing cold to take notes because pens actually freeze if it's under a a certain temperature. Oh, wow. Liquid. So, you know, I learned very valuable life skills um, like that. And I had this whole internal struggle about if I really wanted to be a journalist and is this what it was going to be like? And I hated that. And I'd always thought that I wanted to be a journalist since I was young and I had this whole crisis. But you're glad you are today? Yeah, well, I eventually made my way back to it. And yes, I love what I do. What's a prouder title, journalist or author? I mean, actually, journalists to me. Because I feel like journalists can be authors, but authors can't necessarily be journalists. Like, I think that they're, I don't know, I take a lot of pride in my journalistic training and, like, having gone through a lot of that. Yeah, you earned it, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what was your first job out of college then? I had about a million different internships, but my first real job was at Newsweek magazine. Um, I started as an intern, and then I moved up to a junior reporter, and then ultimately a staff writer. And how did you manage to do that? I mean, how, were you there for a really long time? Did a bunch of yeah. people quit, and they just shoved you I, in their spots, or did I you earn it? I was there for seven years, which I oh, feel wow. like in our world is like a lifetime. Nobody's at jobs for seven years, at least nobody our age or my age. I know. Um, yeah, I was going to say, just so you guys know, she's not like 60 years old. <laughs> right. Like She's like a young woman. Um, most of us haven't been anywhere for seven years. Right. Well, so it was right at this time. I mean, journalism was kind of imploding. And so I got this job at Newsweek magazine in New York, and that was very exciting. And this was one of the few news magazines still left. And at the time, you know, we still had like town car rides home and we would have these big fancy meals the night before the close. And I had an actual office that overlooked Central Park. Like this was a real thing. Um, I'll never have an office again. I like basically work from bed now. Um, (laughs) But... I felt really lucky to have landed a journalism job in an age where journalism jobs were few and far between. And so I stayed. And it was also at the time when they were desperately trying to figure out how to adapt to the digital age. And so I was young and willing to try things out and willing to work on the web. 
um, which for a long time was sort of the ugly stepchild of the magazine, but it actually provided a lot of opportunity for a young person that was into it. So yes, I was able to move up there and I stayed for a long time, probably too long. (laughs) And this is where the club, the Feminist Fight Club Mm -hmm. was born. Yes. So my feminist awakening happened in about 2009 when I was working at Newsweek. I'd started as an intern and there was this whole class of interns, men and women, and we had all kind of come up together. And so it was very easy to track who was rising up the masthead more quickly. And it was all the men. So that was frustrating. And I kept noticing that I would pitch stories and they wouldn't make it into the magazine, but then they would appear a couple of months later with somebody else's byline, usually a man. And then I found out that one of my friends and colleagues who was in a similar title to me and was a man was making $10,000 more than I was. And so all of these kind of small things began to add up. And I started talking with my female friends who were also in similar positions. And we all started venting our frustrations. And then one day we walked up to my cubicle. The offices had been taken away long before that point. Just for women, right? Yes, just for women. (laughs) (laughs) No, we basically were shutting down. Um, No, so we walked up to my cubicle and this researcher in the library who had sort of heard that we were kind of disgruntled and upset, had left a copy of this 1970s book about the women's movement on my desk with a little post-it note to a specific page. And and we were like, what is this? We opened the page. And there was a chapter about the women of Newsweek who in 1970 had sued the magazine for gender discrimination. And this was the first lawsuit of its kind. This lawsuit paved the way for female journalists, and it had a kind of domino effect. After the women of Newsweek sued, the women of the New York Times sued, and the women of Sports Illustrated sued, and the women of Time magazine, and there was a sit-in at the Ladies' Home Journal where the women like (laughs) literally yeah, leapt onto the male editor's desk and were like, we're not leaving until you agree to appoint some female editors to this Here's a cupcake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. and so it was this huge, huge deal, and yet we had never heard of this story, and it was ungoogleable. <laughs> um, we were like, "Wait, but this doesn't exist on the internet. What? <laughs> like, what? What does this mean?" So we had to actually go to the physical library, uh, the New York Public Library, um, and dig up the microfiche files about this lawsuit. But the point is, we were amazed that these women had experienced this thing at this place where we were now working and facing a lot of the same struggle, and yet we never knew this story. It was as if the collective history had been lost, and we asked around. haunted house or something. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, And we, you know, we were journalists, so we were like, well, obviously we need to write a story about this. And the 40th anniversary of this lawsuit is coming up, and that would make a perfect news peg. And so let's go track down these original women from the lawsuit. And so we did, and we reported out this story that was about their case and compared it to our time and what had changed and what hadn't changed. And And you published it through Newsweek? Well, we did eventually, but it was very political and really dramatic, and yeah. we almost quit multiple times, and we were, like, threatening to They were like, it. we can't fire you, so... Basically. Uh, fuck. <laughs> I mean, we sort of forced their <laughs> hand. Um, I mean, in our minds, it was actually a fascinating historical story, and Newsweek looking critically at itself, we felt made them look really good, but... You know, naturally, like the white men in charge didn't necessarily think that, but they had no choice. And eventually it was published. Um, but one of the women from that original lawsuit, her daughter was in a women's group. And she recommended that we meet, and we met, and the Feminist Fight Club was formed. So it was sort of the younger generation group of that original suit how did one join the feminist fight club i mean obviously when something starts it's just really naturally with friends like how big was it it at its biggest or is it and are there chapters is there hazing involved like what is the initiation process (laughs) no initiation um (laughs) are there dudes (laughs) i think dudes could be involved so for us is there a squat is there like a sorority squat we don't do sorority squats okay um that's where i actually learned about those at boston university oh did you Mm -hmm. I just, I just learned about that, too. I just did an article about it's really feminists fun. joining sororities, actually. Oh. 
whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, more feminism than better. Um, yeah, so the Fight Club, I mean, we didn't call it a feminist fight club. We just kind of joked that it was like that because we didn't talk about the club outside of the club. And it was about a dozen women, and we were in different fields, most of us in creative industries, but like journalists, producers, filmmakers, comics. And we just started meeting. And, you know, there was no rule to get in. Um, it kind of just happened organically. But I think that anyone could, I mean, I think people all over the world have feminist fight clubs already. They may just not call them that. These are essentially just like support groups with women or with men, whatever you want to have in it, but people who are going to have your back. And for us, that group became this kind of haven for talking about some of the sexism that we felt we were facing in, in our respective workplaces, which were all very white male dominated. And it was like very institutional New York old media. And, you know, sometimes we would like shoot the shit and sometimes we would bitch and drink wine. And other times we would like critique each other's resumes and try to help each other get jobs. So it wasn't always formal and strategic. Sometimes it was just fun, but we still meet every month and like those ladies are badasses and I wouldn't have written this book if it were not for them and there are many other things that I would not have if it weren't for their support. What do you feel like being a part of a group of women like that has done for you and your career and for others? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of what it did in the beginning was allow me to recognize that some of the issues I was facing were not my own fault. Like it wasn't just that I sucked and that like my ideas weren't good enough. It was that this was a collective problem and we were all facing it. And if we were all facing it, then it must have been systemic, not just individual. And so sort of like feminists of past have talked about how the personal is political. I think for us, it really did help us to realize that this was a larger issue and that if we attacked the issue together and could sort of like trade things that we'd learned over time, then we would be more effective. Um, but, you know, little things like kicking me under the table when I would apologize before I spoke, like oh, that has wow. happened, to, you know, me talking about needing to negotiate a raise but, like, really not wanting to because I don't like talking about money and it's awkward and, uh, like, I was nervous and – you know, members of the group like emailing me daily being like, have you done it? Have you done it? Like, are you going to do it? Here's a tip sheet that I found on whatever website. Like, w look at this. Let's practice. Um, this is something you talk about in your book. Yes. What kind of tips do you have for someone who's asking for more money? Because it is uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah, it's totally uncomfortable. I mean, practicing is really important um, to get comfortable saying the words. Okay, let's, let's role play. Okay. <laughs> I'm your boss. <laughs> How do you ask me for a raise? Okay, so first I'm going to probably set up a meeting with you ahead of time so that I'm not just like suddenly on the spot. And as your boss, I'm like, uh-oh. You're like, oh, <laughs> kidding. shit. I'm um, kidding. Yeah. Half kidding. And so I'm going to set up the meeting and then I'm going to start furiously making lists of all of my accomplishments. And I'm going to include any possible data I can find. So I'm a journalist. It's like hard to give data for things, but I'm going to look up traffic numbers for my articles. I'm going to like add up the potential revenue of like television hits that I've done so that I can give a figure. I'm going to look at the most read list on the website and I'm going to add up like how many things I've published and anything else I can possibly think of so that I can go in there literally with a list of stats that's like, this is what I've done and this is why I deserve this. I'm probably also going to have talked to colleagues about what they're making. I think that this is still a really taboo thing. People don't talk about money. And how can you know if you're being underpaid, especially as a woman, if you're not, if you have no frame of reference? And that guy that I mentioned early in my career that I found out was making 10000 more than me at this very same level, like he told me because I asked and he had no problem telling me. And, and once he realized that I was making less, he encouraged me to ask for more. And I didn't go in and say like, I know this guy is making more than me, but that allowed me to feel so much more confident walking in. And I knew I had it in my back pocket. So those things, um, I'm not going to like tell you that I have $50,000 in student loans, which I do, um, because <laughs> you probably don't give a shit like you're my Cause, boss because you should earn it not right. it shouldn't like, be like you, you should get a raise care. because you need one right. you get exactly. a raise because you 
Exactly. Um, So I'm going to try to rely on facts, not feelings. And then, you know, I'm going to educate myself on some of the things that women face disproportionately to men when they do ask. So there are things like, for a long time, the conventional wisdom was that women were not asking for raises as much. And I think that over the past few years, we've talked about this issue enough that that's actually changing. The newer data shows that we are going in and asking. But the problem is that when women ask, they're often viewed as pushy or asking for too much, and they're disliked when they do. So, like, that's fucked up, obviously. But how do you, like, work around that? Um and so I try to give different ways in the book for for things that you can do. Um, one of them is bringing in a list of data. One of them is, you know, trying to make things about not just you but the team. You may lead the team, but the team has accomplished a lot of really amazing things this year, and that allows you to not appear selfish but selfless. And some of these things, it's tricky because it's like women shouldn't have to do that. Like there's one study that shows that you'll actually be more effective asking for a raise as a woman if you smile while you're doing it. And it's like... That goes... But not for men? No, not for That's men. creepy. Men don't have to. Why, that sounds creepy if a man does it for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> well, men don't have to smile. I mean, like, n- nobody's telling men to smile more or, like, accusing them of having resting bitch face. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. <laughs> um, so things like that, it's like, all right, should I have to smile? No, but I want the money. And I want the raise. And, like, ultimately, if I get the promotion and get in power and can, like, lift other women up with me, then yeah. it was probably worth it. I'll smile and wink. Okay? <laughs> like, the grin and bear, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll be fine for the rest of my, you know? It's like, really, how much are you giving up to just, like, play, like, 10% of the game? Like, right. what do you, what's your opinion of that? Because there is an element of that in, like, yeah. getting by because there yeah. is – what is conventional, right? Um, and there are the powers that be, and there are expectations of women, many of which you debunk, some of which I think you encourage women to probably just like chill on. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's such a conflict. You can like look back and think like, well, if I was a dude, or if I wasn't so nice, or if I right. wasn't charming, or didn't know how to disarm people, like, holy shit, where would I be? Yeah. But if you are in a world where many of the decision makers are men, there's like a certain kind of toolkit, I think, that can get you yeah. by that you shouldn't have to have. Right. That's the thing. You shouldn't have to have it. But if it works. And you've written the toolkit. I hope so. Okay. And so I want to talk about the word feminism, which we've mm-hmm. never talked about on this podcast, just because there's not, I don't know. It's like a word that's out there. I'm mm-hmm. a feminist, mm-hmm. but... I don't really feel this like driving need to th- shove like my ideals down anyone's throat, mm-hmm. but using that word, just using it yeah. makes people feel like they're having something shoved down their throat, which in many ways, like, you know, most of us aren't doing. We're just mm-hmm. using this, this word and calling, like, mm-hmm. saying, hey, yes, like, I believe these things. Has that been controversial in like the marketing of the book? What kinds of questions have you gotten about that? Does it just blow yeah. your mind that it's still a thing that well, so- that word should be so polarizing? Because it blows my mind. Do you find that it's polarizing? Because I actually have been surprised how accepting people have been. Like when I was pitching this book, my first title was Lady Fight Club. Because I was like, feminism is a really, feminist is a polarizing word. And maybe we're just both outdated. I don't know. (laughs) And publishing, (laughs) right. And I was like, and publishing is a little bit antiquated. Like I don't want to lose out on money for my book because I'm using that word, despite it being a book about feminism. Um, And my agent, who's a man, was like, no, Feminist Fight Club is stronger. We're going to do that. And and we went and we pitched it and 12 publishers bid on it. And I was was amazed. Like, I knew that it was good, but I really did think that the title would turn them off. And it didn't. They embraced the title. They loved it. And they've, like, proudly marketed this book, which I think is wonderful to see. I also have been expecting to get a lot of questions since the book came out and as I'm doing press – about the title. And I haven't really, surprisingly. I don't know. Maybe it's like if Beyonce is calling herself a feminist, like anyone can be a feminist. I guess that's now. what happened. Because like, I feel like even like two or three years ago. Right, completely. When this conversation about women started happening, there were celebrities who were like, hell no, I'm not a feminist. And then right. people were like making noise about uh-huh. it. And I think that's where I left off. I've just been really busy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> well, and even like 
even when Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In came out, you know, she called it a kind of manifesto. And she's always said she's a feminist, but like Lean In was became sort of a nicer way to say that you're a feminist I without know. having I to say I feel like girl it. boss is kind of a safe word for it, too. Right, which, which is fine. Like, if you believe need. in the ideals, <laughs> then great. Like, it, it's all working towards the same cause. But, yeah, I have noticed over the last few years that, like, suddenly women and, uh, and young women in particular are wearing the feminist label with pride. Totally. And, like, not just feminist, like, feminist as fuck. Like, feminist AF I see on T-shirts everywhere. That's amazing. I've I never seen that. Button. That's oh, cool. <laughs> cool. Lady Fight Club would just sound like bitch fight or, like, cat yeah, fight. Yeah, that would have been a terrible. Like, feminist fight club is so <laughs> different. Like, the meaning yeah. you can't really, you know. Yeah, Lady Fight Club would have been horrible. So <laughs> I didn't call it that. So you mentioned Sheryl Sandberg. You guys have worked together. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, she's been an amazing mentor to me. So after I left Newsweek, uh, after my very long seven years there, I went and worked at Tumblr and I was launching this new journalism project platform, whatever. And it was like, at the time, you know, touted as like this new, we were doing this new media experiment. It was going to be so cool. And like the New York times wrote an article about it. And then basically 11 months later, they were like, just kidding. We don't want to do that anymore. So myself and my team were, yeah, laid off abruptly. And (laughs) it was fine. It it forced me into freelance existence, and which was the best thing I ever did. But at the time, it was kind of dramatic. And I had just interviewed Sheryl Sandberg for a piece I had written for the New York Times about negotiation seminars. And it was right after Lena and her book came out, and she was launching this nonprofit along with it. And so probably because I had nothing to lose at that point, I was like, I'm going to blind email her and pitch her on doing editorial content for her website because they don't do it and they should do it and I should do it. Um, So I did. And it worked. Like I ended up writing this huge memo and like convincing her that she needed to do content despite her being like, we don't do content. Like that's not what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so so it turned into this much longer relationship where I still do some editorial projects for her nonprofit. We put out um, like a quarterly section of Cosmo magazine focused on women in work. And I curate this thing called the Lean In Collection with Getty Images, which yeah. is a stock photo library basically devoted to like not having women laughing alone with salad and having like actual <laughs> good imagery of women that you can use. Um yeah, so it, she's been wonderful and um and it has been very interesting to watch Lean in explode but also observe a lot of the criticism and see how they responded to it and yeah, it's been a really interesting ride. My book was called Lean in for Misfits and I read most of Lean in but mm-hmm. I didn't read all of it and I've had to like answer questions about it for so long mm-hmm. and I just feel like that's really unfair. It's like, oh wait, two women wrote a book about being a woman and working like right. and that was kind of like my it's been two and a half years since I published Girl Boss, but I just found that like so fascinating and like it's like saying like your music kind of sounds like the Rolling Stones right. like tell me about that and right. it's like I don't know like well I think that part of that is that there aren't that many female writers writing on this issue like when there is a limited number of people talking about a thing then, of course, you get compared to I one another. Yeah. I mean, I sort of feel like how... I was how, flattered. I was like, well, that's great. I mean, I'm, people have said that my book is Lean In for Millennials. I mean, I guess Lean In sold so well and it was so successful and it has so entered the zeitgeist that maybe just everything... It's like that thing in the tech world Definitely where they're like, it's like Uber off. meets X. Totally. So tell me about freelancing. And, you know, you've been writing for the New York Times about gender and sexuality and culture mm-hmm. for a while now. One, how did you wind up writing for the New York Times? Because that's amazing. And two, for all the freelancers, permalancers, mm-hmm. <laughs> girl bosses out there, mm-hmm. what advice do you have to kind of go on your own and not lose, you know, just like forget about your hygiene, really literally working from bed? Yeah. You know? um, yeah, that's a, it's a real struggle thing. of my yeah. existence. Um, the hardest thing about freelancing for me has been the isolation because I really thrive on ideas and talking to people and bouncing, you know, topics and, and ideas off of each other. So, and I went from a newsroom where that's what you do all day and you have a million TVs on and like you just learn to write within a lot of distraction, but it's 
good um, to being home alone in my tiny East Village apartment, like with no pet or anything. Oh, no. I've since moved in with my boyfriend and have a dog, which has helped immensely to like get a dog. Um, I have three. I highly encourage. (laughs) (laughs) Move to LA, you get two more. Oh, my God. Like I can talk to him. He stays home with me. I mean, it really, huge difference. But um, yeah, so the New York Times began actually out of a breakup. I had a terrible breakup. We were together eight years. We lived together. And in New York City, that's like a lifetime. And so my catharsis is writing. And so I just like poured out this essay about it and I submitted it to the Modern Love column. And, you know, I was a published journalist and I had done very well. But there's still like this thing that's like, the oh, it's the New York Times. Well, I'm not good enough to write for the New York Times. And and I talk about this a lot in the book, the idea of sort of feeling like you're not good enough or feeling like an imposter. But with this topic, I was like, I don't give a shit. Like, this is more for my mental health than anything else. And so I just submitted it to, like, the general inbox. Anyway, they selected it and they published it. And it was one of the most read things for multiple weeks. And suddenly I was like, oh, I am good enough to write for the New York Times. And so I just started pitching them. And so that's how it began, and I just developed a relationship with them and kept pitching and now do stuff very regularly and have a contract there. Um, But the freelance thing is really hard. Um, I advise getting out of the house. Um, I have all this advice, and most of it I don't do. Um, But having a dog, you have to walk them. Yeah. So you literally must leave the house or they're going to shit on your floor. Um, Do you have a small dog? Yeah. Yeah, with small bladders, that helps too because they have to go like more frequently. (laughs) So I have to leave the house. The fresh air is good. Um, I worked out of a co-working space for a while. That was helpful. Um, Just getting out, getting dressed. Like, like literally house. just to stay in your own home, which feels yeah. so weird. Yeah. Like, why am I getting dressed? I'm not going anywhere. I know. It's, it feels like a waste. Why should I wash my face? Bosnet's oil is totally good for my skin, right? And then you find yourself right. with these zits behind your ears and you're like, oops. <laughs> right. I usually try to make dinner plans so that at least by like six o'clock I have to get dressed. Um, but it's it's really hard. Um, I mean, financially, it's hard also. So that's like my emotional turmoil and psychological struggle on a daily basis. Um, But financially, it's been tough, too, because I always have seven different jobs and I'm reporting to a bunch of different people and feel very scatterbrained. But for a long time, I had one steady gig that paid me hourly that was like a real kind of job that would direct debit into my account (laughs) so I could pay my rent. And then I could write freely for the other places I wanted to write for. And journalism pays shit. And also they take forever to pay you. So as long as I had this other thing, this consulting thing, then I could not worry so much and want to do the, and be able to do the articles that I wanted to do. You know, it'd be really funny is to do like a sketch or some kind of like a story on how, working from home could possibly be like a sexist workplace. Like I want to see that one. Cause I was just thinking like she wrote the book, an office survival manual for a sexist workplace, but like escape the workplace. Right. And is that the ultimate advice is really that we should just escape the workplace. I'm right. not sure. I mean, someone asked me that last night um, when I was <laughs> a, on stage speaking. Um, yeah. Like is the ultimate rejection to just be like, no, I'm going to go out on my own. I think a lot of people, a lot more people are doing that. Um, and it has its own challenges. I feel like I do still face. Yeah. So it's funny that I wrote this book about the office while literally by myself, uh-huh. like mostly working from bed. Um, but a lot of your communication happens over email these days anyway. And so I would notice a lot of this stuff just in email tone or having to negotiate rates for different pieces I was writing via email. So a lot of it still happened. It just wasn't IRL. Okay. Um, So as a freelancer, how do you stay organized? Do you have like um, a trapper keeper? Is there an app that you use? Like any, Um, any tools that you use to stay organized? Yeah, I have a part-time research assistant and her number one job is to help me stay organized. Cool. Um, I use Dropbox a lot. I'm pretty OCD in general, so I am an organized person, but it's really hard. It's hard, like a million emails at all times. And 
especially with the book stuff, like coordinating your book tour and different stops. Like I showed up late to an event last night, you know, all (laughs) the calendar, like if something doesn't exist on my Google calendar, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Same. My memory is just like, I just like stopped holding things in my head at some point. So you talk in the book about these different um, types of male work enemies, mm-hmm. and there are really funny names for them. And mm-hmm. I just want to talk about some of them mm-hmm. because, um, you know, we've talked about man, I mean, people have heard of mansplaining and other mm-hmm. things like that, but actual like archetypes, I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's start with manterrupter. What's mm-hmm. a manterrupter? So manterrupter is what it sounds like a man who interrupts you, but statistically, this is true. Women are interrupted at twice the rate that men are. So we are regularly being interrupted. I did not interrupt you, but I've interrupted you a lot on this podcast already. Okay. Do women interrupting women count? (laughs) A woman can also be a man interrupter for what it's worth. You know, the idea behind these is to make these funny names and women do get interrupted more frequently, but they also get interrupted by women. So with any of these archetypes, they can also be a woman. It's just rare, more rare. Yeah. What would we, what another one be? Uh, there's the bro appropriator, which is the bro <laughs> who appropriates your idea. Wait. So, and this is you used this an example earlier where this guy stole your byline. Yeah. Or you found the byline of a guy who right. stole your story in Newsweek. So the bro appropriator takes on a couple of different forms. So there's the the guy who like actively is consciously stealing your idea and taking credit for it. But there's also just the concept that we more commonly attribute good ideas to men. Like that is just a bias that we all have. And studies have shown that even in mixed group settings where there's men and women, like an idea that comes out of it, if there's a good idea, both men and women will attribute that idea to a man. So there's also sort of like the less malicious bro appropriator, which is just a man <laughs> getting credit for your work. Um, all, you know, which happens very frequently. And then there's the stenographer. Uh huh. What's that? Um. So, so the stenographer <laughs> with a ph is that's the dude that is like, hey, would you mind taking notes to the only woman in the room, <laughs> or is like, can you grab the coffee, or basically asks women to take on the administrative tasks. And these are all archetypes that have just become part of your lexicon through the meetings that you've had with the feminist fight club. Yeah, I mean... Have you experienced a lot of these? Yes, I've experienced a lot of these, but really what brought them together was being able to prove that they exist through data. So all of the archetypes in the book have research to support that they're real. So oh my God, like, you're such a nerd. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So like the stenographer, statistically, women are more frequently asked to take on administrative tasks. And if you're a woman of color, it's even worse. And... On the flip side of that, women are also more likely to offer to take on those tasks. And the reason why that's bad is because if you're always, like, coordinating the office holiday party or, like, bringing cupcakes for the birthday party or taking the notes, then you're not contributing the ideas and you're not getting recognized for it. So there's a penalty that comes along with these things. Ooh. What's the womenemy? The womenemy, also known as the queen bee or the mean girl um so this is the woman who views you as her enemy which i think we've probably all experienced at one point or another um you know there's this sense that women are competitive with one another and i think to some extent that has been hyped up by the media like queen bee syndrome and mean girls and all of that but i also think there's some truth to it and in my mind like i think that we are taught from a very young age that we need to compete with one another, whether it's over boys or over jobs when we get older. And the way that I see it is that is a result of years and years and years of being told that there's only a couple of slots for women in the workplace. And so like if you look at the large pie and there's this sliver for women, then of course you're going to elbow the woman next to you to, to get that slot. And so my argument is that if we were able to level the playing field, if men and women were equally in power, then like competition would still exist. That's not necessarily a bad thing in the workplace, but it wouldn't be women competing against one another all the time. So the womenemy is the woman who views you as her enemy instead of her ally. What advice do you have for women, girls in the workplace who, you know, may be experiencing some of these things 
And how can women in power, um, you know, change how, I don't know, how women are, are treated in, in the workplace? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most important thing is to have allies at work. Like, not feeling like you're alone can be huge. And knowing that you have a girl posse or a fight club or whatever you want to call it to back you up. I think can be incredibly validating. And it also allows you to recognize if you are experiencing some of these things, that it's not just your problem. Like this is a commonly, this is a common thing that happens to women and it's not just you. It's systemic. Um, and the other thing is what all of the research shows is that having women in power is better for women at all levels. So like if we can get more female bosses, despite the stereotype that people don't like female bosses, actually it's going to be better for women who are in junior positions, in middle positions. And not only that, but it's going to make teams more collaborative. Businesses are going to make more money. Like there's all of these statistics. Literally the GDP will go up 26%, like if we had more women in power and had gender equality. So there's all sorts of cases to be made for why it makes sense to have girl bosses everywhere. Um, it's just a matter of getting there. I think so. I think, you know, there will be a day where the word girl boss or feminist like just doesn't even need to exist anymore. And totally. Until then. It can just be boss. Until then we'll be um, trying not to womanize or one another. <laughs> some of them are a little hard to say. I'm trying to like make some <laughs> new ones up like on the fly. But, yeah, I mean, they're not, you know. They don't all roll off the tongue. It was hard to come up with all these puns. But I actually think that they serve a really important purpose, which is naming this complicated behavior and naming it in a way that is simplified and kind of fun to say. So like mansplaining, you mentioned, I didn't come up with that term. It evolved on the internet. But arguably mansplaining has existed since literally the dawn of time. But only in the past, like, five years have we had this term for it. And it emerged from the internet. And then Rebecca Solnit, the writer, penned an essay about it. And then suddenly, like, everyone was talking about mansplaining. And what that did was it allowed us to call out the behavior. And so now from, like, cable news to our real lives, you see women calling out when a man is mansplaining to them. And you even see men using the word, too. And so I think that some of the use of these terms, otherwise somewhat silly terms is to be able to call out the behavior and then hopefully resolve it. Mm -hmm. Making the inexplicit explicit so yes. that change can be made. But also I think laughing about things is right. really important. Totally. So if you can do all those things in one pun, yeah. then you've accomplished something <laughs> for sure. Um, so what's up with the Feminist Fight Club these days? Is it still around? Is there a resurgence? Are you starting chapters? So I would love for chapters to happen. I was at an event in San Francisco last night and Right before I arrived, I got a Facebook invite to the Feminist Fight Club Bay Area chapter. So they had formed their own group, and a couple of them showed up to the event. Um, our group still meets. Yeah, they're still a lot of my best friends. We still meet monthly. Like, we celebrated our eighth, I think, eighth it was, anniversary recently. We got a cake. Oh, my God. Um, and it's like AA. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> it is a little bit. We've, yeah. we've made that joke before. It's a little bit like AA. We sit in a circle and everything. Um <laughs> And it's going strong. Like, those are my girls. But I would love it if people formed their own fight clubs. Like, I think you can call it any. It can be your girl boss circle. It can be your lean-in totally. group. It can be your feminist fight club. But, like, the point is having a girl posse and supporting each other. Cool. You know, the word girl boss came from um, this Japanese film that has the word sukeban in it in Japanese, but it's translated into girl boss, but the movie was called girl boss gorilla, like G U E R I L L A. Mm -hmm. It's like this seventies, like female biker gang movie where like oh. all the, they're so like hot and they all have like one, a tattoo, like over like the same boob of like a flower. And oh my covers, God. I like, love that. Boob. It's so stylish. Um, and it's like one of those movies that Tarantino stole from, but like nobody knows about. Uh -huh. um, but there's uh, this cool word called sukeban, which is female girl like gang leader. Cool, basically, which is like I don't know. I, I just put those things together like in the last week. And was that the name of their gang, sukeban? It was no, I don't remember the name of the gang, but the movie was called Girl Boss Gorilla. But in Japanese, like there's really if you Google sukeban. It translates into basically girl boss. That's so cool. It's of, of like a gang, which is like cool that there's a word for that. Whoa. I know. I want to like 
I need to go to Japan or something. I've gotten a little... So the, at the very end of the book, I give a glossary of feminist fight clubs throughout history, as I call them. Oh, cool. And, and basically, it was just an excuse for me to like research all of these different girl gangs that are amazing. And I want to look into that one because it's so cool. But there's so many cool ones. And the some weenie of them, whackers. Yeah, the weenie... <laughs> so there's like <laughs> retro 1970s groups. There's modern day ones. There's like the Brujas in the Bronx, which is a Latina skate crew um, that's like trying to bring girls into skate culture. Um, there's a group from the 1970s called Witch, the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. <laughs> They're my favorite Fuck, group. That's so They're cool. Hilarious. They would like dress up as witches and go do these crazy protests. They glued the doors of the New York Stock Exchange shut. One time, that's amazing. At like five in the morning, and then invited all of the media there to like witness the stockbrokers trying to pull them open. Ooh, what's the Chulita Vinyl Club? Oh God, they're cool. They're a an all female DJ collective in South Texas, and most of them are Latina, and they're rad. And they're cool. they're like IRL existing today. They're like a modern day fight club. Um, and what's my what are my other favorite ones oh the lesbian avengers this was a group in the 1980s in new york that was trying to bring attention to lesbian issues and this was before we were talking about lgbt issues at all and they would like go camp out in central park on hand out hershey's kisses that would have little tags in them that would say you've been kissed by a lesbian and they would also eat fire oh wow (laughs) those were their trademarks oh Oh, man (laughs) Crunchy, the crunchies. Totally. It seems like you – did you study a lot of, like, anti-propaganda, like, books or – there's just, like – I love that there's, like, interactive bits and stuff in the book. Did you – like, was there inspiration, like – yeah, I mean, I read through – like, I wanted it to feel like a manual. Um, Mm -hmm. I wanted – my goal was, like, I want this to be in Urban Outfitters and in the business section of Barnes & Noble. And so I wanted you to be able to tear out pages, and, like, there's activities for how to start your own fight club, and there's a place for you to keep battle notes, and there's, like, a playlist and feminist cocktails. But um, I did – I had a lot of fun reading through old 1970s manifestos from different women's groups, which were just like so radical and angry, but simultaneously hilarious. And they had such senses of humor. And so I had a lot of fun doing that and like digging through old archives. Cool. Um, So there's a question I ask every guest on this podcast and it's what is your girl boss moment or what was the girl boss moment you had in the last week? And mm-hmm. so a girl boss moment is, I don't know, kind of like a hallmark moment, but um, not registered, not registered trademark. Um, and <laughs> But it's more like, you know, when what was the time in your week where you felt like you were in control of your life and you were doing things because you were um, choosing them and not because the world was expecting them mm-hmm. of you. And it can be something relating to self-care or it could be, you know, I published my first book or, I mean, that's like a big one, but um, what would you say in the last week your girl boss moment was? So my book just came out and I've been doing a lot of events and I typically get pretty nervous before I do these events, but I've tried to just own it when I walk on the stage and I think in part because I've been so busy and I literally don't have time to stress out I have noticed myself doing that like I'm not prepping more than usual but I'm walking on the stage and I'm just like doing it and answering the questions and sort of attacking them in a way that I wouldn't normally so that's my girl boss moment that's cool to like feel yourself stretch when the world forces you to yeah yeah Jessica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's very fun. Yeah. And now for some girl boss moments. Girl boss moments are the time in your week when you feel like you're in control of your life. A girl boss moment is that time where you stop and say, I'm really proud of what I did, whether it's self-care or getting a promotion or getting your PhD. Um, I'm flattered that anyone with a PhD <laughs> listens to this podcast, and you do, so thank you. But whatever it is to you, you can send in your girl boss moments with using the hashtag girlbossmoment on Twitter and Instagram. We find them, we collect them, we read them, and we pull one out every week to feature on girlboss.com. Salon Hugh says, when you successfully place ads on your blog and you're a total noob with code. <laughs> I like that. Noob. And I like that you spelled it N-U-B-E because I think often it's N-O-O-B. 
but something about NUBs kind of like pube and just like disgusting and funny. Uh, Blaze Meyer says, my girl boss moment this week, I finally shared in a blog post about my 40 pound weight loss story. Amazing. Congratulations. That is hard work. Jess McGettigan says, second day of my internship and pitched an idea that my supervisor wants to pursue. Oh, my God. Cool. You should come work for me. Um, Bernadette Campbell says, a year of looking and I finally cut the BS and got real in my cover letters. Guess who has three interviews and two job offers? That's cool. Yeah. When you're personal with things, people respond. There's so many generic cover letters and generic resumes and just generic people. And it's somehow, like, shocking when someone is authentic and... That's like the easiest thing in the world. So just like indulge. <laughs> Eco Mono says, getting a blog published on the HuffPost UK, yay to kicking goals. And you spelled yay, Y-E-Y. I also like that. So yay to that. My girl boss moment, a feature in at business because, because what else can be done to empower women in biz? Cool. Um, sounds like UCLA is involved here. That's cool. So because I'm reading these a uh, couple weeks out because I'm on a book tour, I could be in Austin or Miami or San Francisco right now. Who knows? You can find out all the tour dates at girlboss.com. I'm not going to make up a girlboss moment for two weeks from now. So I'll be back with a whole lot of them very soon. So that's it. That's another episode, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Our producer is Shara Morris. Thanks also to Odelia Rubin, Kristen Meinzer, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers at Panoply. To stay in touch with Girlboss, all things Girlboss, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Girlboss. You can go to girlboss.com where we publish original content all the time. Sign up for Girlboss Diary, our newsletter. And you can follow me at Sophia Amoruso pretty much everywhere, but Instagram is where I spend most of my time. And please leave us a rating on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and share Girlboss Radio with your friends. We're helping lots of girls by just telling the story of other girls. It's so easy. Thank you also to the band Phases for our theme song. I'm Sophia Amarusa. I'll talk to you next week. I'm in love with my, I'm in love with my love.